on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, if you asked me years ago if I had anything in common with a first lady, I probably would have laughed. But it turns out I actually do have a few things in common with former first lady Michelle Obama. We're both 58. We are both raising two girls. We're both on a similar journey at this moment in our lives. Our hope is to bring light and healing to others by sharing our own journeys. Well, recently, I had the very special opportunity to sit down with Michelle Obama during a stop on her book tour. We were in Philadelphia. Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Michelle Obama. Which, by the way, was electric. You'll hear the crowd from time to time laughing and clapping, just taking it all in. And I have to be honest, too, I was taking it all in as well. I was struck by so many things during this conversation, mainly how funny the former first lady is, but also how authentic she is. The real deal, not afraid to share moments of vulnerability, of hardship, or obstacles. And I was able to look beyond her role in the White House to see her as a woman, a change maker, a wife, a mother. I felt the warmth of her light, and I hope you do too. I'm Hoda Kotby. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of my podcast, Making Space. about you. There's something, you've always been sparkly, but there's something extra sparkly about you at this time in your life. You are 58 years old. Your voice is loud and proud. What is it about this moment? Well, I think it's uh, it's freedom um, (laughs) in in so many different ways. Um, You know, we are taught that we're supposed to value youth and the only thing you are when you are young is young. <laughs> you know, you, you really don't come into your own. At least I didn't feel like I came into my own until I was in my 50s. And a lot of that has to do with you think you're supposed to have it figured out. And for all you young people, no, no. You will be confused for many decades. <laughs> and it is okay. But I'm on the other side of parenting. You know, I'm moving from mom-in-chief to advisor-in-chief, and that's a lovely thing, to be able to watch my girls fly and Mm. have the relief that, okay, I I think I didn't mess them up. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to my profession, I feel like I have more autonomy, and, you know, I'm still in love with my husband, so when it all... (laughs) When it, when it all lines up, I don't have a reason not to glow right now, you know? And I have my health, which we cannot ever take that for granted, especially in these times. And we should point out, one of your beautiful daughters is here with us. I got one. That's 
part of my glow right now. Whenever, when your children leave and they come back, oh, it's just like, you're here. Are you here? <laughs> so I have one of them with me. Now, you said that you found your voice in your 50s. That's mm-hmm. when you feel like you found it. How much of yourself had to be quieted while you were in the White House? Oh, so much of it. So much of it. Um, because the, the mission during those eight years was bigger than just my voice. Yeah. Um, you know, we were the first. <laughs> Hopefully not the only, but we were the first. And when you're the first at stuff, especially the first in the biggest spotlight, the world watching you, you don't want to mess it up, mm-hmm. you know? And you want to make sure that you are representing. You know, I talk about this in the book, the... Uh, challenges when you are the first or an only, you are carrying a tray of other people's expectations Mm. along Mm. with you on the journey. You know, one small misstep isn't just a misstep for you, but it's a misstep for your family, for your community, for your race, for all of humanity, Mm. because we don't often get a second chance. Barack and I have been the first and onlys in a number of different rooms. And when you are that, you feel like you have to show up and there is no margin for error. Mm -hmm. So it was no accident that the administration was scandal-free. It was no accident that, you know... That our our children had to show up right in the world. They carried a burden of making sure they weren't messy because it wouldn't have been laughed off. It wouldn't have been just, oh, it's youthful, whatever. It would have been some bigger statement about the soul of black folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we didn't underestimate that. But part of that weight is exhausting when you're carrying mm-hmm. that. And I didn't feel that exhaustion. I told this story in Becoming, but after the inauguration, and we know whose inauguration we were at, um, <laughs> That day was so emotional for so many different reasons. We were leaving the home we had been in for eight years, the only home our kids really knew. They remembered Chicago, but they had spent more time in the White House than anywhere. So we were saying goodbye to the staff and all the people who helped to raise them. There were tears. There was that emotion. But then to sit on that stage and watch the the opposite of what we represented on display. There was no diversity. There was no color on that stage. Mm -hmm. There was no reflection of the broader sense of America. And many people took pictures of me and they like, you weren't in a good mood. No, I was not. (laughs) Um, But you had to hold it together like you do for eight years. And then you walk through the Capitol, you wave goodbye, you get on Marine One, and you take your last flight off flying over the Capitol, where there weren't that many people there. We saw it, (laughs) by the way. And then we went to Andrews Air Force Base, said goodbye to the military, got on Air Force One, and when those doors shut, I cried for 30 minutes straight. Mm. Uncontrollable sobbing. Because that's how much we were holding it together for eight years Mm. without really Mm. being able to show it all. Mm. So I guess that's the long Mm. way of saying, yeah, no, I I had to, you know, count my steps for eight years. And so, yeah, that that was real. Are you happier now than you were? Yes, (laughs) yes, yeah. 
do not get me wrong, being first lady of this country was the greatest honor. It was the greatest honor of my life. And I took it seriously, you know. I worked my butt off for this nation mm-hmm. because I felt like if you're here for eight years, I wanted to leave and show something. I wanted to touch some lives. I wanted mm-hmm. to open that house up. I wanted people flowing through it. I wanted kids to feel like they were a part of that house. So every event was well thought out. We included a broader set of communities. Mm-hmm. We had music. We had Girl Scouts camping out. I didn't want a day go by that that house didn't feel full and mm. loved. So do not get me wrong. It was a privilege to serve. Mm. But it was hard. Yeah. And it was hard on our family. It was hard on my daughters growing up in the spotlight. You know, you just try to make it look easy because you don't want to seem ungrateful. But being outside of politics and outside of the divisiveness of our politics is just a better place. Mm -hmm. I just think that people can hear you better if you have a point. If you're not a politician, that shouldn't be the case, but that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm happier outside of that. You know, we learned so much about your lovely mother, who we all grew to love watching her in the White House. Uh, but in your book, which is so beautiful, there are so many beautiful things about your father. Mm-hmm. Your father had MS. And it was so interesting as I was reading about this, Meredith Vieira, who's a dear friend of mine, her husband has MS. I remember hearing her story, yeah. Well, she told me there's only one good thing about MS. And I said, what is that? And she said, it made our children better people. Yes. It made the children better. Yeah. So then I thought about you. Yeah. You're used to watching your dad struggle and you're used to being the one I'm going to look out for him. How did his... You call it a differentness, not a disability. How did it affect you, change you? I think it made us cautious and watchful in ways. I I write about this in ways that other families did not. I opened the book with that story because it's really, when I think about it, my earliest memory of knowing that we were different because our father had a disability. And his disability caused him a severe limp in his leg. And MS is a disease that is deteriorating over time. So I never knew my father to walk without a limp, without needing the aid of a cane and eventually crutches and then a walker and, you know, a motorized cart. I mean, it got progressively worse. So when you have a parent with a disability, you have to think about things in different ways. You, when you go out, you have to worry about the grade of the sidewalks and where is he going to sit and how tired will he be if we go to an activity. Mm-hmm. We generally left earlier to give him time so he wouldn't feel rushed. As I said, we were always, like I was in the White House, we were always counting our steps. Hmm. That was something we were trained to do. And it was also the first time I remember feeling and understanding what it was like to be vulnerable. Hmm. Because when your parent, and he was still the primary breadwinner, my father got up, he went to work every day at the water filtration plant. He earned a salary that allowed my mother to stay home for much of our grammar school days. And that was important to the both of them. But when your parent, the one who is taking care of you and putting a roof over your head is in a vulnerable position, it, it, it changes you. Mm-hmm. It makes you wary and watchful in ways that um, 
that you don't understand. And it also requires you to be adaptable. And I think that, you know, in many ways, you know, learning that, number one, life is unfair, um, that so much of it is out of your control. Mm -hmm. And when my father would fall and you would see everything before you just falling out in front of you, what he would do is that he would get up, brush it off, Hmm. laugh it off and move on because he was trying to project to us a sense of calm. Hmm. And so I think we learned that over time, my brother and I, my mother and all of us, we learned that, you know, life is not within your control, but you got to get up and keep moving anyway. So there is a level of resilience that I learned from him as well. This quote from your book is so beautiful. My dad was able to look past whatever mirror the world might have held up to him. All the ways a blue-collar black man walking on crutches might otherwise be made to feel worthless or invisible. He didn't focus on who he wasn't or what he didn't have. Instead, he measured his value by who he was and what he had. Love, community, food in the fridge, two tall and noisy kids, and friends knocking on his door. He saw these things as success and as reason to keep going. It was evidence he mattered. I have chills on my body. How old were you when he passed, Michelle? I was, it was right before, um, fortunately, he got to meet Barack. Oh, he did. So he got to meet him. And I think he told me he was able to ask my father, let him know that he wanted to marry me. So he knew Barack, but he died before my wedding. So he couldn't walk me down the aisle. Mm. Um, But my father, you know, I mean, if you talk about who has affected me most and how I see the world and who gave me the foundation to know that I mattered, to understand that, you know, you got to find your light from within, Mm -hmm. that it is not handed to you, nor should you expect anybody to hand it to you. It was my father, because with all that he had to deal with it, he, he was one of the most visible people I knew. He was a bright light, not just for us, but for his siblings, for my mother's siblings, mm. for his extended family. He was the core. And he was satisfied with his life. <laughs> you know, he was satisfied with what many of us would think would be this small life, but he yeah. knew his life was big. He knew he was fortunate. So whatever challenges he faced, he turned those into gold. And so it's hard for me to ever feel sorry for myself. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to ever let anybody else get me down because I think about what my father did, getting up every day to go to work, not complaining, being an honest man, being an honest broker, which is one of the reasons that helped me see that in Barack. You know, Mm. I saw those qualities in him Mm. in the same way I saw them in my father. Coming up, one of my favorite stories from Mrs. Obama. I was looking for long walks on the beach, but what Barack was showing me was his steady. How their first trip as a couple to Hawaii proved to be so much more than a romantic getaway. A lesson in love when we come back. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. 
This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, you talk about meeting Barack. I've been waiting for this part, so... <laughs> I, love, I love a story you tell. After you've met, he wants to invite you to Hawaii, which sounds so romantic Yeah, and that insane. was one of the reasons why I was like, okay, I can date you. <laughs> this so is where ha- Christmas will be, in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm in love. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened that day? When he took you the first time. That first trip, I was a second year as a law associate. So I was working long hours in Chicago. It was cold. You know, we were going to go home. I was going to meet his family. And he was still in law school. So we were long distance. You know, I'm thinking, I need a vacation. This is going to be a vacation. We're going to Hawaii. It's my ties, you know. (laughs) On the beach, sunsets, long walks. But when I got there, I realized this is his home. And, Mm -hmm. you know, his family didn't live together. Uh, His mother lived abroad and worked abroad. You know, being in Hawaii, he didn't get to see his younger sister and his grandparents. So it was a going home trip. It wasn't a romantic getaway. And I didn't realize that until the first (laughs) day we go over. What do we do? We're going over to Toot and Gramps's, which was great, right? You know, sandwiches on TV trays and putting together jigsaw puzzles and all the catching up and watching 60 Minutes on, you know, TV. It reminded me of my grandparents, but I didn't know I'd be doing that in Hawaii. Um, And catching up and time spent, all this important stuff, the same thing that I did with my family, which was charming. And then the second day, we did it again. <laughs> and that second day, maybe we went to the beach, but then we went to pick up Maya, and then we went back to Tootin' Gramps's, uh, you know. And the young in me started to get a little irritated. Deep down, I held it in, first of all, because I was taught, you show your manners, don't, you know, be impatient. But there was a part of me that was going, well, this isn't romantic. Mm-mm. This wasn't what I envisioned. This is a family trip. <laughs> But what I came to realize was that, and this is something for young people as you look for a mate, because I was looking for romance. I was looking for long walks on the beach. But what Barack was showing me was his steady, his constant. He was showing me that his family mattered and that Mm. even with a girlfriend in tow, he prioritized being there for his grandparents and for his little sister and his mother. He showed up for his people, and that's what you want. And that's what Barack has shown me his entire Mm. life, that he shows up for us, for me and our daughters, for his friends, for our families. 
He's a constant. Now, he is an I love you guy. He comes from an I love you family. They say it a lot, yes. right? They say it a lot. In your family, you expressed it differently. You guys didn't say it all the time. Is That's that right? because we were with each other all the time. <laughs> you know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago with everybody living within three blocks from each other. You know, we lived in an apartment over my great aunt, who is my piano teacher, Aunt Rabbi. We lived around the corner from my mother's grandfather. And then my father's parents lived maybe five minutes away. So we were present, right? Mm. We celebrate cousins on cousins. We were over someone's house. There was, with that many people, there was mm-hmm. always a birthday. Mm-hmm. There was always cake and candles. We didn't have time to say I love you because we were like, <laughs> see you next week. You know? So love was demonstrable. It was every day. It was showing up. It was dad going to work. You know, it was right there. But his family lived, they were scattered about. So love meant you had to say it because you couldn't show it. Yeah, yeah. You know? So together we make a wonderful pair because he's like, come sit on my lap, kiss me, hug me. I was like, "Uh I'm busy. (laughs) You know I love you. Stop with all this. Let's get on with it. (laughs) So together we make a a good balance. (laughs) You said something to me the other day. You said, you know, Barack can say to me, you're beautiful, you're ravishing. You, the sun rises and sets on you. And he can mean all those things. Yet if you don't feel it inside yourself, that kind of that love for yourself, which is elusive for all of us. We're yeah. all kind of trying to find it. Um, it doesn't land well, even though he's telling well, the, the truth. it's the power of the voices in our head, the negative voices that, yeah. you know, and I am not immune just because I put on nice clothes and I, you know, give good speeches and I lived in the White House. A lot of people think, oh, you too have doubt. You too yeah. have negative thoughts in your head. Oh, yeah, uh, yes, probably more than most because I am subject to the public discussion where everyone is discussing your weight, your height, your size. Everyone feels like they can comment on your life. So, yeah, we all have those negative images. Mm -hmm. And one of the chapters in the book I call Starting Kind. And it's just about learning to give yourself messages of gladness and having that as a practice because we live the opposite in our minds. Mm -hmm. We generally wake up and look at ourselves and we find all the things wrong, that running list of things that only we know, even if the rest of the world can't see it. But if we don't start practicing kindness for ourselves and gladness, it's hard for us to give it to other people. I use a story that Toni Morrison shared about one thing she realized about her mothering, and I saw myself doing it to Malia, that sometimes when our kids walk into the room, we greet them with what's called a critical eye. Mm-hmm. Like, because we're so busy. Malia came in, and she was wrinkled. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever she had on was very wrinkly. <laughs> and she was actually coming to my hotel room to find the steamer. She walks in, maybe the second time I saw her this morning, And I was like, you're wrinkly. (laughs) You're going to do something about this. And she's like, yeah, mom, I'm going to. And then I thought I did it. You know, I greeted her instead of what I felt, which is, sit on my lap, give me a kiss. I'm fixing things. Mm -hmm. I'm pointing out, oh, my God, your hair is not right here. What Toni Morrison says is that, you know, 
Our kids just want our gladness. They don't need us to fix them. They don't need us to point out the thing that's wrong first. And I write about that because that is a practice. I know that I try to practice that with kids in the world. Mm -hmm. I understand the power of the gladness I can give them. Me, Michelle Obama, the first lady of the United States. I know that when I am interacting with kids that, you know, it means something for me to see their specialness. Mm. And so that's why we spent so much time with kids because what I do understand is that there are a lot of kids who can live their whole life and not be received with gladness. Mm. And I just think, man, if this interaction is their chance to be seen by somebody Mm. and somebody that they think is important, Mm. I'm not going to squander it. But it's also there as Mm. a reminder Mm. to all of us that we've got to be careful with how we communicate with young people. And what's interesting in your book, you hit so many of these great themes. And one of them was you tell the story about how your brother Craig got a brand new bike. Yes. And he was so excited to get this bike. It was like a 10-speed because he was a bigger kid and he needed a bigger bike. Mm -hmm. And tell the story. So Yeah. So he's riding to the beach, brand new bike. My parents had saved up money. And it was a bike that was on sale. So there were a lot of bikes, yellow 10-speeds that were Mm -hmm. being sold. He's riding his bike, and a police officer stops him out of the blue, and he says, you stole that bike. And my brother was like, no, this is my bike. Police officer didn't believe him, but my brother said, take me to my home, and you will meet my mother. (laughs) The police officer put his bike in the trunk of his car, put him in the car, brought him home, Mm. Where my mother proceeded to curse that police officer out. (laughs) (laughs) And this was a black police officer. After she cursed him out, you know, and the the guy was like, well, I I was pretty sure he wasn't telling the truth because usually kids who steal don't want to be taken back to their house. But that still didn't stop him Mm -hmm. from putting this little boy's bike, I think, in his trunk. My mother stewed over this. She later went, took Craig to the police station and made him apologize to my brother. Wow. But but just like the high school counselor who told me that I wasn't Princeton material, those slights, those cuts, they last. Mm -hmm. I'm still arguing with that counselor in my head. My brother still remembers that police officer. It is a reminder that it matters what we say to young people. Yes. And that's why we have doubts, you know? Yes. That's why we're still in our heads trying to convince ourselves that we matter. Because when you grow up in a world where people are trying to separate you from your pride, then Mm -hmm. naturally, you're not crazy for doubting yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have doubts Mm -hmm. because I've grown up always trying to prove that I belong. Makes me want to cry for some reason that you're trying to prove that you belong. Well, we all are. We all are. We all are. And the process of not mattering is... It is... It's not just race. It's not just, you know, gender. So many of us feel like we don't matter. 
You know, when you are unseen and poverty makes you unseen, a lack of education, a lack of opportunity, I think that's part of what we are struggling with. Mm -hmm. Too many of us are dealing with those incidents in our heads. Mm -hmm. And then we don't understand that we're connected by them. We mm-hmm. think our hurt is only our own, Mm-mm. which is why I share mine, because I want all young people to know it's not just you. It happened to Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. and it didn't stop her from owning her greatness. So it's happening to all of us, you know. My dad taught me how to turn my challenges into superpower, you know. So now my reaction when somebody—and I always had that attitude— was that you tell me I can't, instead of wilting and going away, my feeling in my mind is, I'll show you. Uh I will show you. I will show that counselor just how smart I am. Oh, you doubt that I can be a good first lady because, (laughs) you know, for all the people who criticized me, called me angry when I was on the campaign trail, who talked about my size. I was like, I will be the best first lady this country has ever seen. I am going to shut all these people down. I am going to work harder. I am going to be smarter. I'm going to get more done. I'll show you. But not every kid has that fire. Not every kid has that fire, you know? So we have to be careful because when they don't have it, those same doubting things can snuff a kid out. Mm-hmm. You know, it can make them feel small and they can stay in their smallness. Mm-hmm. I want to get kids to understand you cannot let that poison in because it is there waiting for you. Mm-hmm. There are people who get off on making other people feel small. And it's a shame But we have to prepare our kids. We have to get them armored up so that when they get out there, those cuts and bruises do not turn them away. Coming up from growing up in the White House to now rooming together as young adults, more from Mrs. Obama on her girls. Plus, a hilarious story about former President Obama coaching his daughter's basketball team. You know, so you imagine... You're the parent coach that doesn't know basketball, and the president of the United States is, like, (laughs) checking you. By game four, he was on the bench. Presidents, they are just like us. More of my special episode of Making Space when we come back. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, my charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. 
was the best part of raising him in the White House and what was the part you did not like the uh, most? The best part of raising them in the White House was that, well, you know, after <laughs> coming off of the campaign where dad was always gone, mm. it was nice that, you know, he lived above the store. <laughs> so we could get back into our regular routine of dinner time mm-hmm. together. He could be there for bedtime. You know, he was there most of the time. He was able to go to all their parent-teacher conferences and all their little concerts. You know, he was able to be involved in their life. He coached Sasha's fourth-grade girls' basketball league, which was a trip, right? (laughs) Because he he wasn't supposed to coach. They were called the Vipers. Um, In fourth grade, these little girls cared more about putting their shirts up and tucking them in than having their (laughs) shoes tied. So, But it was all the fourth-grade girls in the school, and it was parent-led, and it was in a Y in the neighborhood, and Barack is a basketball junkie. The parents who were coaching really didn't know how to coach. So he's sitting there at the games, and he's like, they're not running any plays. And I'm like, I know, I know. They should be passing. Matri should be under the net. This, I don't know, what are they doing? So he started easing down to where the coach's table was each game. And he was like, "Um, you know, first of all, she needs to tie her shoe, you know. So you imagine... You're the parent coach that doesn't know basketball, and the president of the United States is, like, (laughs) checking you. By game four, he was on the bench. (laughs) He started running practices, because he was like, they should have two plays. He's like, we're just going to work on two plays. He designed two plays. I remember one was called Box. Mm -hmm. They they had names, the plays. And then, so he started having all the girls come to one of the gyms in the department of something that had a gym. <laughs> he and his assistant, Reggie Love, they started running these girls through drills. So they'd have practice on Wednesday if there wasn't like a G Summit or a national crisis. You know, when he was in town, and then he would be at the games on Sunday. And they got good. But imagine what that game was like for the other team, right? Because it was Sasha and it was also Maisie Biden, who the Biden granddaughters are good friends with the girl. Maisie is actually an amazing athlete. So on any given game day, we would all go. Oh, jeez. So now you're playing against the Vipers. Who's in the gym? The president, the first lady, the vice president, the second lady, all of our kids, their parents, and all of our secret service. There was an ambulance outside. There were helicopters flying over. There were snipers at the door. And then, like, Joe would be yelling, like, pass, Maisie, blocker. And you could see the other parents were all like quiet. Like, what's going on here? This doesn't seem fair. Oh my gosh. And they won the championship. Oh, they did. They did. They, did. <laughs> they won the championship. It oh became a thing. So for him to be able to be yeah. engaged in that way was a beautiful thing. 
And what about, because you were talking about how, like when any of our kids step out, um, we just want to make sure everything works out for them. And your kids have the spotlight on them. So how, I mean, this had to be one of the worst parts of being in the White House is that every single thing your kids did, everyone was interested in. Yeah. So did you... They still, uh, you know, they still hate that part. They (laughs) still are hounded by... Wow. Paparazzi, not because they seek the light, but because we are a fame culture. And yeah. so many people are searching for it that they assume you just want it. Weekends at the White House when the girls were teens was miserable, right? Because everybody's on high alert just yeah. to make sure that their normal teenage life didn't get on the front page news. Yeah. So we really work closely with the press. So I'm happy to say most of the press respected that mm-hmm. during the time that they were there. Were your kids close to one another when they were younger? Uh, they were, but they didn't like each other. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, that's deep. Malia would say, I always liked Sasha. She just didn't like her. <laughs> Uh, three years, that's an interesting age difference because three years when you're seven and 10 is a lot. Yeah. That's a big age difference. And Sasha was always keeping up. And also Malia was smarter than Sasha. So she seemed more <laughs> irrational. It's like, why did she just hit me in the back? It's like, because you have words and she doesn't. Right, right, So in right, an right. argument, you're arguing her, she's just going to smack you. Um <laughs> But now they are very close because 24, 21, they're each other's best friends. They live together. They are each other's confidants. And that is a gratifying thing as a mother. I knew it was going to happen. I told them. I was like, it's coming. (laughs) But they love each other. They are each other's ride or die. And I love it. Well, the idea that they're roommates, that's, that tells you everything. Yeah. I mean, what did you think when, during the moment where they said to you, Mom and Dad, we're going to be living together, we're going to be roommates? We were both like, okay, <laughs> let's see how this goes. Yeah. And then we were thinking, ooh, we're saving on rent. <laughs> it's like, good, let's get them under one roof. What are you telling them about having their own families? Because I think there's pressure, obviously, on a lot of, a lot of people to be like, Oh, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? How do you advise them yeah, through that? I, I write about this in Partnering Well. I mean, I want my daughters to have a broad view of what happiness can look like. Mm-hmm. And I think we do a disservice, particularly to women. You know, I mean, you, you get that all the time. You could have an amazing career. And somebody says, are you married? Mm-hmm. My grandmother used to do this to me. I'm in law school at Harvard, right? (laughs) My grandmother would call me to chat. And first thing she would say, what did you cook? (laughs) My grandma, I'm I'm in law school. There isn't even a kitchen around, you know? Uh, But that becomes the expectation. You're a young woman. Are you married? We don't ask that question anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? And then if you are, oh, when are you going to have a baby? Mm -hmm. Not knowing... Can you? Do you Mm -hmm. want one? You know, what kind of pain that generates? It's Mm -hmm. almost like saying, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you're married, but, oh, you can't really be happy. And then you have one kid. What do they want to know? Oh, wait, you're going to have a boy? You're going to have another one? It feels like it's never enough. And we don't know what life will hand them. Mm. Maybe you find love. Great. But don't get married to check a box to respond to somebody else because there are so many ways and Hoda, you are a living, breathing example of 
how many ways you can build a life and have a family and have happiness, you know, and we should not be making you question that. And we tend to do that. And I want my daughters growing up understanding that they can have whatever life they choose. As long as they're happy, we've got their backs. And I know you've dealt with that too, Hoda. Yeah, you know what's funny? Um, I actually always wanted children, but I never said it out loud because I, I was married, divorced, and I had breast cancer all in my, during that window when it's supposed to happen. And so I just never spoke about it. And one day I was walking just down the street with a good friend of mine, and she said casually, well, we never wanted kids, you know, just, you know, she's married, been married for years. And for the very first time, I said, well, actually, I I did. And she goes, you never said it. And I said, well, I never said it because I don't want to say something out loud that I know I'll never be able to have, so I never said it. And then it taught me something in that minute. And it's, if you want something, say it out loud. Mm -hmm. Even just to yourself in the bathroom mirror, say it. Because, Michelle, after I said it out loud, I have chills on my body. After I said it out loud, I saw a story about Sandra Bullock, my exact age, who just adopted a child. And I go, oh my gosh. Everywhere I turned, I saw possibility. So I decided I'm going to fill out the paperwork, and I did all the things I was supposed to do. I'm sitting in my office, and I'll never forget it. And I got a text, and it said it was from Ashley. And Ashley from the adoption agency said, if I ever text you, call me immediately. So I saw the text. It said, call me. And I took out a yellow pad like this one, and I wrote, 11.05 a.m. Because you knew, you knew it was going to be something. This is the moment. I dialed the number, and she said two words. She's here. Oh, wow. And I knew in that moment, Michelle, like, my whole life, Mm -hmm. I love you too, my whole life changed. And I thought to myself, well, why not me? I think that's the question, because some blessings come early. Some blessings come later. You don't really know when your blessing is going to come. But I think if if you don't say it, whether it's your dream job, your dream place to live, your dream. Like, I, I think sometimes we all get quieted. We're not shy, we get quieted. Yeah, well, it, because we live in a world, a society, a country where we're taught that only certain people's stories matter, that mm-hmm. there's like only one way to be human, mm-hmm. right? And it's really limited, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks like a certain race, a certain gender, a certain income mm-hmm. class, which is sometimes why we gravitate to leaders that look like that, mm-hmm. because they look like they should know something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also why it's important for us, you know, when we have platforms to be vulnerable and share our stories so that we start rewriting the story of who matters. Hmm. We have to all put our stories out there. We have to rewrite the story of who matters Mm -hmm. and who counts. But if we're hiding it, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're not stating our truth because it doesn't fit into a certain definition, then we're just keeping the definition of what's important, what is American, you know? Mm -hmm. 
what has value, we're hiding behind that. And we've got to broaden the spectrum Mm-hmm. of what it means to be American, what it means to be accepted, what it means to be loved, who deserves it, you know? But we all have to be vulnerable in that regard. So I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that part of it because there's going to be somebody out there. There's a woman out there right now who is single or divorced who doesn't see herself as someone who should be a mother mm-hmm. because it didn't take the right path. Mm. And you are an amazing mother, you know? <laughs> you know, and you have no reason to doubt whether you should have done this, you oh, know? So best, thank you for sharing that. Best decision of my life, oh. best decisions. All right. One of the most famous statements you've ever made, I think, is when they go low, we go... Yeah. Now, you've seen a lot over the last few years. Do you still believe in that statement? I absolutely believe in that statement. Um, I, I end the book with a whole chapter trying to explain what it actually means, other than just a motto or a slogan. And yes, I get that question. Now, we still mm-hmm. go high? You see what's <laughs> going on out there? Um, and the reason I still hold fast is that the whole point of the statement is it's not that you are not entitled to your rage, your anger, your frustration. Going high doesn't mean being complacent and watching things fall apart and doing nothing about it. Going high is about pairing your rage with reason, having a plan that actually leads to change rather than wallowing in your basis emotion. You know, feelings are not a plan. And the other reason (laughs) that I say that is because we've been living with leadership that has gone low. You know, we felt that. Many of us chose it directly, others indirectly by not choosing at all. It doesn't make us a better people going low. Going low is a cheap shot. Going low just makes you feel good in the moment because light is what people need. We go high because we're showing our children and our grandchildren what it means to live with dignity, you know, how to respect one another. This world is too big and too crowded for us not to operate at that level. So my answer, Hoda, is yeah, yeah. Going high is not an easy task. It requires work daily work, reinforce work, you know, to continue to find the light in ourselves so that we can see it in others. It's just simply a better way to live. So yes, we still must go high. Ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Obama. Thank you, Hoda. Thank you, Philadelphia. By the way, a big thank you to Michelle Obama for inviting me into her world. And also, thank you to Higher Ground Media for providing us with the conversation you just heard. To hear more of this conversation, head over to Michelle Obama's The Light Podcast, wherever you're listening now. And as always, thank you for listening. Your support means everything to me. And I hope you'll stay on the journey with me as we continue to make space together. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Ursula Summer, along with associate producer Rachel Yawn. 
Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Mastrorelli. Our audio engineers are Tarek Fuda and Bob Mallory. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Mina Kathuria is our executive producer. And Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.